I've got um, a couple of scriptures on my heart tonight, and uh, uh, based on uh, just what I have so far, we should be should take me about ten minutes to cover these scriptures, and after that, I don't know what we're going to do. So you believe with me that God will get us wherever He wants us to go. But uh, the idea that I have uh, in my heart, what is that? Is that kids' class? Make sure their doors are shut. A new drummer for Sunday morning. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Okay, Numbers chapter 23. The, the, what I've got in my heart is very simple, and that is God cannot lie. Numbers 23, verse 19. Story of Balak uh, and um, uh, Balaam. And Balaam was a backslidden prophet and, and so forth, and God had to get him back on track in a very spectacular manner and speaking to him through the mouth of his donkey. But... Um, uh, Here's what uh, Balaam, the prophet, after he got back on track, here's what Balaam, the prophet, said as he was instructed by the Lord to tell the enemy king. Verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Folks, I want to submit something to you just very simply for you to consider, and that is, if everybody believed that what God said was true because it's impossible for God to lie, you wouldn't have any problems here on this earth. Because you can't find one area of life that God's word doesn't cover you. You can't find one aspect of life that his promise does not apply. Well, okay, then, if God's promises cover every aspect, healing for the physical body, rest and peace for the soul, spiritual new birth, recreation of the human spirit, and so forth. That's all part of the salvation, uh, the work of salvation, literally the work of redemption that Jesus accomplished. If all these things are made available to us, then why doesn't the church have them? And by that, I mean, why are there individual Christians that fail to take part in or, um, well, what's the best way to say it? Access that which Jesus has done. The Bible says it's a fact. What Jesus has done is a fact. If, if you're waiting for God to do something about your situation, you're going in the wrong direction. Because the Bible says God's already done everything he's going to do about healing your physical body. Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, and with his stripes, you were healed. That is a finished, accomplished work, period. So there's nothing for God to do. Jesus has done it all. Now, the same thing is true where your finances are concerned. Jesus paid the same price on the cross. He was chastised for your peace. That word peace is translated prosperity throughout the Old Testament. So there was a work of, of uh, penalty, a punishment that Jesus took upon himself, not only for the physical body, but for our financial well-being. To bring us into the blessing of Abraham. And part of the blessing of Abraham was riches. God said to Abraham, I'll bless you. And, and the Bible says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow to it. And God made Abraham very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Well, Jesus accomplished the same work on the cross. It was a part of redemption. As he did for sins, he paid the price for sins. He paid the price for financial well-being. He paid the price for sickness. So there's nothing for God to do. If and I think that's uh, I think there are too many of us, too many Christians. I, I hate to use the word us because that's I don't fall into that category. Sometimes I try to say things to sound nice, and I put myself in the wrong group. But I think too many people are looking for God to do something when the Bible says God has already done something. And furthermore, where it comes to healing, the Bible says the Lord God sent his word and healed us. In other words, 
the avenue for healing for each and every person, each and every Christian is the word of God. Well, then why doesn't the word of God heal every person? Why is every Christian not healed? Why do Christians individually fail to receive their healing? There's only one possible answer. They don't believe the word's true. Or I guess an offshoot of that is maybe they believe the word's true, but they don't know how to appropriate what the word says is theirs. I guess that's possible too. But either way, it comes down to a matter of faith. It comes down to either faith to believe the word is true or how to operate in faith and receive. Can you think of any other reason why somebody would fail to receive? Now, you might get into to, to splitting hairs and say, well, maybe there's sin in somebody's life. Well, if that's the case, then that really comes down to not believing the word's true. Because you can't be in sin and not know something either from the written word or from the conviction of the Holy Ghost within you to tell you that you're doing the wrong thing. Well, maybe there's some other kind of hindrance. There's no hindrance to receiving from God that the word doesn't cover. So it all comes down to the one thing, and that is believing that God's word's true. Well, all right, then if we attack it from that standpoint, then why do so many Christians fail to believe God's word's true? I guess if we open the floor to that, we'd get a, a million and one reasons, huh? But again, I would submit to you that it comes down to a pretty short list, one of them being they think God lied. It could also include people thinking, well, if God's word's true, all right, but I'm just unworthy or something along those lines, something being wrong with them. But then again, we're back to the same starting point, and that is you can't believe you're unworthy and believe God's word is true. Because God's word says the blood of Jesus made you worthy. Yeah, but I just don't feel like it. Okay, we'll join the club. Do any of us ever feel worthy? But that doesn't change the fact that the blood of Jesus made you worthy. So, folks, I would submit to you, and, and again, I, I, I hate to be simple, but that's just kind of how I am. Everything comes down to this verse of Scripture. God is not a man that he can lie. Or the son of man that he may repent. Or should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken it? And shall he not make it good? You know, there's uh, there's three different times. Uh, more times are, are listed in this because the uh, different gospel writers give us account of the same situation. But there's three specific times that Jesus said something to this effect. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never fail. One was having to do with the fulfilling of the law. The other had to do with the end times, that which was to come, yet to come. And the third had to do with when the Jews uh, accused him of operating outside the law of Moses. It was a separate incident from the first time regarding the law. And he said, heaven and earth shall not shall pass away before one jot or one tittle of the law be fulfilled or is not fulfilled. In other words, he's showing the assurance, the guarantee of his word. If the Holy Ghost gave us three instances, three separate accounts of Jesus saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. He must have placed a high premium on the word of God. He must have placed a high premium on the words that he spoke, knowing that those were the words that God gave him. Now, I want to. Um, um, that's it. Thanks for coming. Um, 
Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We've got a story of the, the faith of Abraham. And oh, what a wonderful example Abraham was to us and is to us as far as his faith is concerned. But I think sometimes we, um, we miss some of the, the, the truths, the real where the rubber meets the road type stuff just down where we live when we just see the account in Romans chapter 4. It gives us a great overview of Abraham's life of faith. And in that, we'll start reading verse 17. As it is written, here's what God said unto you, as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. In other words, it's written in the scripture that God said to Abraham, I have made thee the father of nations, many nations. Before him, whom he believed, even God. Now, that's a that, that's a real poor translation because it means Abraham was like God. In this manner, Abraham was like God, who God calleth things that be not as though they are, and he quickeneth the dead. In other words, it's saying Abraham imitated God by calling things that were not as though they were. That's what verse 17 is really trying to get across. God said, I've made you the father of many nations, and Abraham imitated him by repeating that, calling things that were not as though they were. That's what the import of verse 17 is. Verse 18, who against hope, that means Abraham didn't have any natural hope because his body was too old to have children. Who against hope believed in hope. He had to come up with some hope outside of his physical body. Well, what was that physical or what was that hope that he came up with outside of the, his physical body? That hope was according to that which was spoken. In other words, he based his hope on what, what God said to him rather than what he could see in his flesh. To what end? So that he might become the father of nations. In other words, he wanted a result, and in order to achieve that result, he had to base his faith on what God said, because there was no evidence in his physical body to support it. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. I like the American standard on this. It says, but looking under the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. But if he's not looking at his body, what's he looking at? He's looking at the word of God. That's how he kept from considering his body dead. He's not denying the circumstance. He's not denying the facts, but he's got something greater to look at instead of the condition of his flesh. And what that was, was the promise that God had made to him. So shall thy seed be. And being fully persuaded, verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now verse 21 is really, in in my thinking, verse 21 is the key. You've got other verses. Verse 20, for example, being uh, strong in faith, giving glory to God and so forth. That's great instruction of how to operate in faith. But verse 21 is really the key. Because you can operate the principles of faith all you want to, but if you're not fully persuaded that God can do what his word says he'll do, then at best you're going to spend years and years making confessions before something takes hold. And as a result, we look at these things casually. This is telling us about one event in Abraham's life when he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. You know the story about how Isaac, the son of promise, was made. The promise of Isaac was made to them. But but that promise was made when he's 75 years old. So for 25 years, he has not realized that promise, and God works things out miraculously for him to have a child when he's 100 years old, way past, both him and Sarah, both way past childbearing age. 
He had to alter things in their body. Now, whatever the situation is in your flesh, there's nothing more necessary to be changed than what we've got an example of that God changed in them. For example, you might have a body part. You may have an internal organ that's not working anymore. Well, God changed their internal organs and made them work. So whatever your situation is, can't be more impossible than this example that we have in Abraham's life. And I think for that, it's supposed to be an encouragement to us. If God can do this, he can do whatever you need him to do for you. But the question is, how did he get to verse 21? How did Abraham get to the place where he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform? How did he get to the place where he knew it was impossible for God to lie? That's really the question I'm asking you. That's what verse 21 means. Verse 21 means he was fully persuaded, absolutely convinced that it was impossible for God to lie. God said, so shall thy seed be. It's impossible for him to lie. Now, folks, if we can get there, then the sky's the limit. That's a common term that people use. Actually, it's not really accurate in this case because there is no limit. Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes. And that's really the key to that. To come to the place where you're fully persuaded that what God has promised, he's able also to perform. How did Abraham get there? See, this is packing. This story is packing in in about, uh, what, four or five verses. It's packing about 25 years of life experience for Abraham to tell us what he came to. But the question is, are you going to be get, are you going to be able to get to the place where you're fully persuaded in the time that it takes to read these four or five verses? Or is it going to take some life experience for you just like it took Abraham life experience? Well, if we can identify the experiences that he had that helped him get there, then wouldn't that be an aid for us to get to the same place? Turn back with me to Genesis. Let's start in about verse uh, or chapter. Uh, oh, I don't know. Let's start in chapter 15. God first appears to Abraham in chapter 12 and says, Abraham, go where I tell you to go and I'll bless you. And I'll make you a blessing and I'll make your name great. Chapter 13 tells us that Abraham became very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Abraham's servant later told us that God's the one that made him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. That fits with the Bible. Proverbs says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. So God said, I'll bless you. If the blessing of the Lord makes you rich, Abraham was very rich in silver and cattle and gold, then it must have been God that made him rich. See, even I can figure that out. In chapter 15, Abraham's already experienced some victories. He's come back from the, the defeating the enemy kings, the five enemy kings with just the household servants. That's a big victory, folks. He was outnumbered greatly, but he defeated them all. Met Melchizedek on the way back. Had quite an experience. He's having supernatural experience after supernatural experience. Chapter 15. After these things, it's interesting that the Bible seems to indicate that one event is built on the other. In other words, Abraham didn't grow in faith overnight any more than you and I will grow in faith overnight. One experience, one victory led to another experience where he grew a little bit more. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, the reason that God speaks to him like this is because Abraham in the previous chapter has refused to take any of the spoils. 
if you remember the story, the, um, Abraham and his uh, nephew Lot have parted, com- or his uh, nephew Lot have parted companies, and Lot and his family were taken in one of these cities, the city of Sodom, by these enemy kings. And Abraham hears about that. Abram hears about that. And he goes after him with the 300 and something hired servants of his house. And he defeats those five enemy kings. Now, you can't do that with that number of people when you're outnumbered at least 10 to 1, as he was, without the hand of God being upon you. And on the way back, the king of Sodom says, i tell you what, give me the people. That's what I'm interested in. I want to control the people. You take the goods. You take the stuff. And Abraham said, no, I won't take anything from you because I don't want anybody to say that you made me rich. He wants to be known not just for being rich, but for God making him rich. And so God appears to him immediately following that and says, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. I love how this reads in the original Hebrew, translation from the original Hebrew, because it literally means this. He said, I am your uh, shield, I am your protector, and your vehemently increasing payment. That's what exceeding great reward means. Vehemently increasing Payment. That doesn't sound to me like God has decided, well, it's okay for Abraham to have some stuff. It sounds to me like God is active in making sure that Abraham does have stuff. Especially when he puts him first, like he did when faced with the opportunity to take the goods from the battle that God won for him. So he says, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing that I go childless? And this steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, I've got a hired servant, a slave in my house, somebody that I purchased. He's the only heir I've got. Shows where his heart is, doesn't it? That's part, that's one-third of the promise God first made to him in chapter 12. Follow me, and I'll make you a blessing. I'll bless, first thing he says, I'll bless you. That's the riches for himself. I'll make you a blessing. God always wants you to have enough to bless other people with. And then third, he said, I'll make your name great. Now, the name great has to do with children. And Abraham understood that. And now, some years later, after he's seen the hand of God upon his life, increasing him in a lot of different ways, now he says, okay, that's great. Stuff, having stuff is great. But what about the child part of the promise? What will you give me? Literally, he's saying, how much money would buy the child that I really have a desire for? I'm glad you want to bless me with financial things, Lord. I'm glad that you're promising to increase me even more than you have already. But what about the child? That's what he's saying. And Abraham said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. In other words, he's saying, you've made good on two-thirds of the promise, but what about that love of one-third? You haven't given me what you promised me. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now further on it says, that God brings him into another experience, a greater depth of a relationship than he had with him before. Before, he just had a promise. Now God makes a covenant with him. 
And it talks about how that there was a, a deep sleep that fell upon Abraham. And before that took place, he divided two turtle doves in half and a, and a, a different sacrifices and stuff like that. And it says that God, literally Jesus, walked between the pieces. And he says, Under the, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant, verse 18, with Abram, saying, Under thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and it tells other boundaries. In other words, before there ever was an Arab or children of Ishmael, God said, this land is yours forever. All this stuff we hear about nowadays, the land of Palestine belonging to the Arabs. There was no such thing as an Arab when God said, it's yours, Abraham. Okay, thank you very much. Now let's skip over to chapter 17. Verse 1, and when Abram was 90 years old and 9, so it's been 24 years since God first appeared to Abram and given him the promises, right? It's about 10 years after um, this event in chapter 15. So Abraham is probably about 75, or uh, I'm sorry, he started off 75. He's probably about 85, 80, 85 to 88, something like that. When chapter 15 takes place. Now in chapter 17, he's 99 years old. So he's known God for 24 years, still doesn't have the child. The Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. Now, however many years have gone, most most people agree there's been about 10 years from the event in chapter 15. Those 10 years, Abraham has had a tremendous spiritual experience. He can remember back, man, that smoking flax and that burning lamp, which is both of those are types of the fire and the glory of God. Now, it's uh, it's interesting because the Bible says a burning flax and a smoking lamp, meaning two different appearances. Walked between the two pieces, the you know, the split pieces of the of the sacrifices signifying the covenant. Can I ask you a question? Why didn't Abraham walk in there? In the covenant with him? If the covenant is supposed to be with Abraham, Abraham's got to be one of the parties that walks through. Now, if the burning lamp represents God, if that's Jesus showing up to represent God, that's fine. But Abraham's got to be the other party walking through. Or else the covenant's not for him. But as was common practice in that day and still present in, in uh, cultures that still do this kind of stuff today, you can have a representative to represent you instead of doing it yourself. And what I'm trying to get across to you very simply, folks, is that there were two representatives. Both of them were divine, the smoking lamp and the burning flax. And what that means is one represented God and the other represented Abraham. God literally made a covenant with himself or Jesus to be the representative for the covenant that we have through Abraham. Now, why is that important? Because the covenant does not just belong to Abraham as a human being. The covenant belongs to Abraham and his seed, which are Christ. See, if Abraham had been one of the parties that walked through, you wouldn't have any part of this. I assume you're not a physical descendant of Abraham any more than I am. But there were two representatives. One represented one represented God, the other represented Abraham. And both of those representatives were divine personalities. 
God made a covenant with Jesus as Abraham's representative. So, some years goes by. God appears and said, walk before me and be thou perfect, and I'll make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. He's still talking about those stars of the sky type thing. And Abraham doesn't have a child, or at least he doesn't have uh, a child to Sarah. At this time, Ishmael has been born. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Now, folks, the change in Abram and Abraham is that God took the Jehovah, the H that we know of as Jehovah in the English, or Yahweh in the Hebrew, and gave Abraham part of his name. So now Abram, whose name is now Abraham, has both a human and a God part name. And that signifies the covenant. We're one and the same, Abram. Now Abraham. And I'll make thee exceedingly fruitful, verse 6, and I'll make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Folks, the Jews are not going to live on the earth forever. He can't be just talking about physical descendants. For an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee, and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, all the land of Canaan, all the land of Canaan. That's what everybody's fighting over now is all the land of Canaan. There is no seed of Ishmael at this point in time. It's still Abraham and his child, Isaac, that it belongs to. And I'll give uh, unto thee all the, unto the seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession or until the United States gets involved and takes it away from you. For an everlasting possession, I'll be their God. Don't believe all this stuff you hear on the news channels about who this land belongs to. If God's not able to give away land, who can? It was kind of his to make, you know? Okay. Um, He tells him about circumcising your house. And then verse 15, it says, And God said unto Abraham, And as for Sarah thy wife, or Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. He puts the same H in her name too. Same God consonant in her name. Because she's got a part in this too. She's not just along for the ride. It's important that she believes as well. And I will bless her and will give her a son, give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? Now the margin of my Bible has a little number seven here. And it says by the word laughed, it says, or in the margin, it says, or rejoiced. Well, what's Abraham doing? It would be a great sermon for us to say, and Abraham, after 25 years, had such confidence in the word of the Lord that he just rejoiced at hearing the good news. The problem is, if you look up this word in the Hebrew, it means laughed. Translators did it right. Abraham laughs. He's saying, he looks at his body and he says, come on. 
I'm a hundred, almost. You're talking to me now about having children? We talked about this 25 years ago. Had a big meeting about it with that covenant thing in chapter 15, some 10 years ago. And now you're talking to me about having children? That bus is pulled out of the station. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? Now let me ask you a question. At ninety-nine years of age, Abraham does not look like we see him described in Romans chapter 4. I don't see in this him being fully persuaded that what God had promised he's able also to perform. So if you were thinking, oh, my goodness, is it going to take me 25 years to get there like it took Abraham? It didn't take Abraham 25 years. It took him one. It took him one year, and actually it took him less than that. I'll prove that to you in just a moment. It took him just a matter of a few months. And Abraham said unto God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. If he's rejoicing about having Isaac, then what's he talking about Ishmael for? He's giving up and saying, nah, that's physical. Having a child of my own body and Sarah's, no, Ishmael, take care of him. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. Now, what I, the point I'm really trying to make to you is how does he go from unbelief in verse 17 to fully persuaded in Romans 4.21? How does he get there? Because if we can figure out how he gets there, you can figure out how to get there for yourself. For me, this is one of the most important passages of Scripture in the whole Word of God. Now, if you're not interested in receiving anything from the Lord, then this may not mean anything to you, and that's okay. But for me, I want everything Jesus paid for. People talk about when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God things. Listen, I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and not having Jesus say, why didn't you take advantage of what I did? I'm trying to make sure that he's not asking me a bunch of stuff when I get there. And God said, how does Abraham get from unbelief to, to fully persuaded? Notice what God does. God simply repeats the promise. He said, God... Uh, And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. The word indeed just means truly. And thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard him or heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him for him a great nation. That's the Arab nations of the world, folks. God said, I'll bless him for your sake because I've heard you. But, verse 21, my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. How does Abraham go from unbelief at age 99 to fully persuaded at age 100? How does that happen? Well, notice what God does. God repeats the promise But now he gives him a new vision. He's talked to him about having children. He's talked to him about stars in the sky and sand on the seashore being like his children and all this kind of stuff. He said that several different times. But for the first time ever, God gives him a vision of a son named Isaac. So what's God done? He's changed his name and he's planted a new vision in him. 
Now it's not just make your name great. Now it's not just seed as the stars of the sky and sand of the seashore. That's easy. That looks like a big crowd. Okay, now he's made it personal. And he said, this time next year with Sarah, you're going to have a son named Isaac. How does Abraham not start seeing a baby named Isaac from that point forward? Tells us that at the end of the chapter, end of chapter 18, Abraham circumcises his household. Um, we know that 10 years before, or about 10 years before, uh, maybe even longer than that, he's taken over 300 of his hired servants and, and uh, conquered five enemy kings. So don't look at the circumcision thing lightly. These are people, slaves that he's bought and people born in his own house. Because their parents have been in, have been his servants and slaves for a long time. And, and I don't, I don't know exactly how this worked, but nobody's ever been circumcised before. It says that Abraham at age 99 was circumcised along with everybody else, older men, adults. And who do you pick to do the circumcising? Nobody's got any experience with this. Can you see the, the adult slaves in his house? You're going to do what with that knife? Who's going to do it? Why him? How do we know he's any good at this? Folks, these people don't have covenants with God. Abram does. But he he directs his household based on his belief. That's significant. That has a lot to do with God trusting him with the child of promise. Chapter 18. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre and sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. Talks to him about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, different things like that uh, in the chapter. But uh, verse 9 is where I want you to see. And they said unto him, where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. And he said, this has got to be Jesus. This has got to be the Lord as one of these three guys, two angels and Jesus showing up at Abraham's house. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. Do you know what that means? The time of life has to do with God restarting her um, reproductive organs. I don't know how long they've been inoperable, but returning unto her according to the time of life means I will start things in her body again. I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well-stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. In other words, her reproductive organs have stopped. She's gone through menopause and so forth. That's going to change. The promise she just got from the Lord is that's going to change. And so Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? In other words, now I'm going to have a child? Now, what does that tell you? That says to me that Abraham hadn't talked to Isaac or talked to Sarah a lot about having Isaac. It's been a vision that he's carried from the Lord, but she's got to get the vision too. Because this is not a matter of her saying, you know, well, Abraham told me about that, but that can't be real, can it? I mean, I could understand that reaction. But it's like she's coming out of the blue saying, wait a minute, now I'm going to have a child? I remember Abraham telling me this when he was 75. He's mentioned some things along the way, but now, when I'm 90? So there's not a lot of faith being exercised here either, is there? Yet Sarah makes it into the Hebrews chapter 11 hall of fame of faith 
he rose. So something changed in her too. Well, okay, what changed with her? Then Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore or why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, the Lord knows that Sarah's listening. So when he says this to Abraham, he might as well be talking to her because he knows she's hearing this. Now, with Abraham, he changed him from his place of unbelief by repeating the promise and giving him a vision, a different vision than he's ever had before. With Sarah, he does something entirely different. He challenges her on God's ability, on his ability. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Folks, that's a real question we ought to ask ourselves. That's a real question. When you start believing God for something, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whatever it is, when you start believing God for something, that's that ought to be a question you ask yourself. Is God big enough to do this? Because the devil's going to challenge you on that somewhere along the way. So if you get that out of the way up front, that gives him one less thing to hang his hat on. Gives the devil one less opportunity area to attack you. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, we can casually say, oh, no, all things are possible with God. But the question is really, as far as you're concerned, real life, real belief, is anything too hard for God? Is your situation too hard for the Lord? Well, maybe you're facing something that's impossible. Yeah. And? Is that too hard for him? See, you start thinking like that and you start thinking about how big God is. You have to. God created this place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made it from nothing. So we know he's that big. Is that big enough for me and my situation? Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. But he said, no, you laughed. Now, we assume that he said means Abraham. We assume that this means that Abraham is the one that asks her about this or speaks to her in some manner. And she says, no, 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 I didn't laugh. I I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, no, you laughed. Now, why would Abraham agree that she laughed when all he's got is the word of the Lord that said she laughed? Because now the word of the Lord means more to him than anything that he sees and hears. So what does he say to Sarah to get her from a place of unbelief to a place in faith where he can change things in her body? He challenges her on her belief concerning God's ability. Totally different operation where Abraham was concerned. It took a different thing to get each one of them to a place of faith. New vision for him. For her. It was a set time and the question of God's ability. I will return unto her this time next year. She's probably been thinking, we've been looking for this for 25 years and now all of a sudden it's going to happen. God says, this time next year you're going to have a child. So what does he do? Well, for me, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but in, in, in knowing me, that would give me the encouragement that I would need. To believe anything I had to. I'm just a year away. Thought it was never going to happen. Now I'm just a year away. Well, assuming that there's a nine-month pregnancy, as we would assume to be normal, 
then this time next year for her having a child, within three months, she's getting pregnant. We know it can't be over a year for Abraham because he was 99 when God first appeared to him or appeared to him in chapter 17 or 18, whatever it was, and changed his name. So we're talking about a matter of months. We're not talking about a real long time. What I want you to see is they both went from being in unbelief to being fully persuaded in a matter of a few months. All because they focused on the right thing. Now turn back over with me to chapter 22. Chapter 22, Isaac's been born. Verse 1, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abram and said unto him, Abraham, or did tempt Abraham, excuse me, his name's different now, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, I'm here. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. That's quite an interesting conversation he must have had with the Lord. Now, please notice it says, uh, I'm sorry, I don't really hate to take the time here, but I can't overlook this. Here where it said God did tempt Abram, a lot of times people will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Bible says God doesn't tempt us with evil. This can't be God. This can't be the right thing. And you've got a whole group of the church that says that Abraham really missed it here because God God didn't really tell him to do what he wound up doing. Folks, I want you to, uh, uh, James is the one that says, God can neither be tempted of evil, neither tempts he any man with evil. The reality is that the word tempt here means test. And the Bible is very clear and very specific about God not testing you with evil. But it doesn't say God won't test you. It says he won't test you with evil. And I would submit to you that every word of God is a test. Every instruction that you receive from the Lord is a test. The instruction about bringing your tithe into the storehouse is a test. He's not testing you or tempting you with evil, but he's testing you as to whether or not you'll obey his word. And you can come up with a lot of reasons not to. You can come up with a lot of reasons not to do whatever the Bible says. The Bible says walk in love. That's a test. You can come up with a lot of reasons why you shouldn't. Well, they've been mean to me. They did me wrong. They talk about me. Okay, so what are you going to do? The Bible says, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Now, God knows what the end result of this thing is. Abraham does not, but Abraham thinks this thing through. He takes everybody, goes on the way to where God's telling him to go. Verse 4, it says, then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, abide here. With the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, the Septuagint, notice he says, we'll come back. Notice he says, we will come back. We will come back to you. He's not saying, I'll come back. I'm going to kill him up there, but, you know, I'll be back. Because God loves me. No, it says, we'll come back to you again. The Septuagint is even more specific. It says, we will, uh, having worshipped, we will return to you. Now, the Septuagint was the Bible of Jesus' day. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. The word provide means to show forth or to see. He literally says, My son, God will show forth himself as an offering. In other words, Abraham's saying, We're going to see something on top of this mountain. Isaac, you're going to see God provide himself for us. Now, what's he thinking? Is he thinking God's going to stop him before he offers his son as a, as a sacrifice? Is he thinking God's got something stuck in the bushes up in the mountain as, as what it turns out to be? What's he thinking? I don't know. But we do know he's thinking we're both coming down off this hill. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on an altar upon the wood. How did he get his son up there? Abraham is eight, uh, uh, 100 and, um, what is he, 115 years old, something like that, at the time this takes place, maybe even older than that. How does he take his teenage son and tie him up and put him on the altar if Isaac is not willing to be laid down? We miss some of this when we just read over it real quick, don't we? Isaac had to be a partner in this. How did Abraham convince him to lay down? How did Abraham convince him, okay, now, son, here's what's going to happen. But I need you to cooperate here. How did he convince him to be willing to do it? See, folks, this is not just Abraham's faith. This is also Isaac's inheritance. So he laid him on the altar. And Abraham stretched forth his son, his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He's willing to go through. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham received Isaac in a figure. In other words, he envisioned this. If God has to raise this boy from the dead, he will. We're both coming off this mountain. I'm willing to carry this through all the way because God said that this was the child through whom my seed would be blessed. To all the nations of the earth. He can't die, therefore. He doesn't have children. So if it takes raising him from the dead. Now, the point I want you to see is, remember where we started with? He's laughing at age 99, saying, you got to be kidding. A child now? And he gives him a vision of this son. Changes his name and gives him a vision of this son. Sarah, on the other hand, he questions her and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? I can see Abraham asking himself this all the way up the hill. And even before they even went on this journey from the time that God told him what to do. Is anything too hard for God? God made me a promise. He said that this boy would be the source of all the nations of the earth being blessed. But now he's telling me to offer him as a sacrifice. If he dies, God's got to make him alive again. That's why Romans 4.17 is so important. The God who quickens the dead and calls those things that be not as though they are. Abraham recognized and reckoned on God's ability to raise from the dead if necessary. You can't find that ever happening before. This point in time. Abraham's never seen this happen. He's believing for something that has never taken place before if that's what's necessary for God to honor his word. Sounds like Abraham's becoming fully persuaded in every respect. 
Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything upon him or unto him. For now I know. What was this? This was a test to see how far Abraham would go to obey God. How far will you go? Will you go to the point where it gets inconvenient? How far will you go? Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Kind of sounds like what God did sending Jesus, doesn't it? And folks, that's what a covenant is. A covenant is everything is mine is yours and everything that's yours is mine. Abraham has just said, everything that's mine is yours, including the son that you gave me miraculously. So if it, even if it hadn't been part of God's original plan of redemption, which was formed from before the foundations of the earth, God is now obligated to offer his son for Abraham and his seed. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Verse 14. Please notice verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. Now, we sing songs and talk about how Jehovah-Jireh means the Lord will provide and so forth. And that's an accurate translation. But the word literally means he will be seen. Seen. S-E-E-N. In other words, and the reason we use this for provision is God will show himself as the provider. And I want you to notice that he called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord, he will be seen. What does this mean? This shows the impossibility of God to lie. When God makes a promise, the Lord, he will be seen. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, or God will make himself known. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about God showing up. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. And here's what I want you to see, verses 16, 17, and 18. And he said, by myself have I sworn. Now, this is the Lord speaking from heaven. He said, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because thou hast obeyed my voice. Folks, this is what brought you in. Now, notice again before we turn and uh, uh, look real quickly with me, but also turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Here's what the Lord said again in verse 16. I'll read it to you as you're turning to Hebrews 6. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, that in blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I'll multiply thee. Now turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 6. I know we're out of time, so let me go through this real quickly. I went a lot longer with these scriptures than I thought I was going to go. Good thing God didn't give me a lot of scriptures to start with. We'd be here forever. Hebrews chapter 6. 
Let's start reading in verse 13. Now, verse 12. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. For, verse 13, when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. That's what we just read in Genesis chapter 22. That's when God said in verse 16, Genesis chapter 22, by myself I swear. Because you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That in blessing I'll bless thee, and in multiplying I'll multiply thee, and make your seed as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in thee. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Now, folks, there's only a couple of times you can find in Scripture where God ever swore by himself. Number one, he swore uh, in Genesis chapter 22. That had to do with the promise of Abraham. Two times in Numbers chapter 14 did he swear. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, I think it is, he said, As truly as I live, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Now, that phrase, as truly as I live, is God swearing. Because what's God's life like? Isn't it eternal? In other words, it's God saying, this is the way it is. It's an unchanging law. It can never change. As truly as I live, this is eternal. I will deal with you according to the words that you speak in my mouth, or words that I hear you speak from your mouth in my ear. Then again, he says in Numbers chapter 14, I think this is verse 28, as truly as I live, the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Really only three times you can find in Scripture, at least that I can find in Scripture, three times where God swore something. I mean, he's God. He really doesn't have to swear. But three times, once to Abraham and twice to Abraham's seed, did he say something about this is the way it is, it'll never change, this is always the way it's going to be. One had to do with the blessing of Abraham. The other had to do with the, the principle of faith. God deals with you according to the words you speak. And the third had to do with the glory of God being seen and known in the earth. That's a pretty good three list of three things. So again, back to verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Blessing I will bless thee, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently, he, Abraham, patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men, here's the way the principle works. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, if two people are in conflict, once you get a guarantee, then the strife ends. Well, the oath is the guarantee. In other words, if you and I are in some kind of business arrangement and I make you a promise and you come back and say, well, how do I know you're going to keep that promise? Once I make a guarantee, once I put it in writing, in other words, that would be the equivalent of an oath in their day. Once I put it in writing, now I'm on the hook. I'm legally bound. you got nothing to complain about anymore. You got a document with my signature on it that guarantees that what I promise you will be a reality. That's what the oath is like. An oath is an end to all strife. In other words, the oath is the guarantee for that which was spoken or promised. Wherein, verse 17, God, now we're going to put this in a God context, a divine context, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability, immutability just means unchangingness. Wherefore, God, being more willing to show to the heirs of promise. Who are the heirs of promise? The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the blessing or the promise. So this is talking about us. 
Wherefore, God being more willing to show unto the heirs of promise. Not just Abraham, but also Abraham's seed, the seed being Christ. Remember, I talked to you about Genesis chapter 15, where the two divine personalities walk through the sacrifice, both as representatives of the two parties, one representing God, the other representing Abraham. God literally made a covenant with Jesus, not just Abraham. He made a covenant with Jesus so that in Christ you would be an heir of this covenant blessing. If it had just been Abraham walking through there, Jesus being one of them and Abraham being the other, then only the physical descendants of Abraham would have been heirs or in in position to be an heir of the promise God made. But the fact that Jesus was Abraham's representative, then you being in Christ through salvation makes you an heir of the promise. It's almost like God had this stuff figured out. Wherefore, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. In other words, it's saying, just like I might give you a guarantee, I might sign a piece of paper to guarantee whatever I've promised. God is more willingly, more willing, more abundantly willing to show unto us the unchangingness of his counsel, meaning his word. In other words, the impossibility of him to lie. Willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the unmutability, the unchanging of his counsel, confirmed it with an oath. That's when he swore to Abraham. You remember part of that, that promise that he swore to Abraham was that in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That includes you and me. If that hadn't been part of it, we wouldn't have any part of this either. Again, God's looking out for you. That by two immutable, two unchanging things in which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. How did you flee for refuge? You fled to Jesus. You accepted Jesus as your Lord. Now, folks, let me tell you the difference between counsel and oath. Counsel is the word of God. That has to do with the things that somebody says. An oath has to do with a person's character. Because even if I sign a piece of paper, if I'm no good, neither is the paper any good. People break written guarantees all day long. People break contracts right and left. It doesn't depend on just the paper or the guarantee. It depends on the character of the person doing the guarantee. That's what this is talking about. Two unchanging things. God's word can never change because it's impossible for him to lie. And his oath can never change because his character never changes. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he spoken it? Or has he said it and shall he not do it? Has he spoken it and shall he not make it good? You've got promises that are impossible for God to break. Smith Wigglesworth is one of my favorites. And it is said of him, it was, uh, it's been written in a number of places. Somebody, I don't know who coined this phrase, but somebody coined the phrase that one of the things that made Wigglesworth such a dynamite um, preacher, minister, whatever, was that he had an audacity of faith. Now, Wigglesworth's whole thing, and he would say this over and over and over again. He, he would, it was like he would mock people's idea. He was like, there's any chance of God not answering his prayer, answering our prayer. Like there's any chance of God not honoring his word. I mean, he'd, he'd mock people 
he'd mock people's unbelief. Because he knew that it was impossible for God to lie. And there was something about him. He, he inspired that even reading after him, reading the sermons that he, that he preached and stuff like that. It, there's just something about it. It's contagious. That's why I like to read so much of his stuff. Because see, he was convinced this is anything too hard for God. He settled that way back then. He knew there was nothing too hard for God. And as a result, he could inspire other people to believe that his confidence in the word of God would inspire their confidence. And it was like, well, yeah, the Bible says it. Of course. And he'd have some of the most outstanding miracles that you could imagine. Ever tell you about the guy that he prayed for that didn't have feet? I told you that story. Somebody came to him in a wheelchair and the guy didn't have feet. And so Wigglesworth prays for him. And uh, just simple prayer, you know, nothing to it. Well, you know what I mean by that. Nothing special to it. There's a lot to it. But nothing out of the ordinary. He prays for the guy and then tells the guy, go to the shoe store. A guy without feet being commanded to, by the preacher to go to the shoe store. Well, the guy, uh, the, the testimony was the guy thought, well, I don't want to do that. I don't think that's the right thing to do. But he thought about it for a day or two and he thought, well, what would it hurt? I mean, the guy's getting a lot of other people healed. Granted, this would be something more than out your ordinary healing, you know, for his feet to grow back or appear or however that works. I'm not really sure. So he went to the shoe store. Well, it caused a big stir because the shoe salesman was all flustered when the guy comes in. It's obvious that he doesn't have feet. And so he says, oh, you shouldn't be here. And, and he says, uh, the, the guy without feet says, well, I know. He said, but, but, you know, the, uh, the preacher told me to do this. And so it created a big stir and everybody's gathering around in the shoe store. What's a guy without feet doing in a shoe store type thing? And so he asked him, he said, uh, uh, the guy without feet said to the salesman, he said, what size shoes do you think I should wear? He said, you don't have any feet. There's no shoe size for not having feet. And he says, well, okay. Look at my size. Look at, you know, how tall I would be and, and that kind of thing. What size shoe do you think I would have if I had any feet? He said, well, I don't know. Maybe you'd be a 10 or 10 and a half or something like that. Whatever. I don't know what the shoe size was. He said, could you bring me one of those? He said, you want a pair of shoes? He says, yeah, bring me a pair of shoes. Whatever you think the size would be right for my, my height and weight and all that kind of stuff. God never had been born without feet. Never had shoes before in his life. He didn't know anything about shoes. This guy, this salesman brings the shoes out. And the, and the, the guy said, I know this is going to sound weird, but can you put them where my feet would be? As the salesman, he talked, had some trouble talking the salesman into doing it, but there was a crowd of people, everybody's looking around, looking on and stuff. As he did that, his feet grew into the shoes. Just the right size. Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, folks, that's why Wigglesworth had such success in raising the dead, because raising the dead was not impossible as far as he was concerned, impossible for God as far as he was concerned. You know the only limitations we have? Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes. You know the only limitation we have? Right there. And we've got an outstanding story which shows us how Abraham overcame that to become fully persuaded to get one of the greatest miracles that's ever recorded in history. You can too. It's impossible for God to lie. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. Oh, Lord. Help us to overcome the smallness of our thinking. Help us to overcome the limitations that we've placed on you and upon ourselves. <laughs> Help us, Lord, to take the brakes off. And to simply take you at your word. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Quicken us. Open our eyes to the truth. That we may step out and take hold of that which has been promised. That which is sure. That which cannot fail. Because it's impossible for you to lie, Father. In Jesus' precious name. Now, while we were praying, the presence of God settled in on us. Why is it here? I believe it's here for God to help you to cross the boundary that you've set in your mind and your thinking that holds you back from receiving what God has promised. That's as far as I can take you. You've got to cross it for yourself. We all do. So whatever has to change in your thinking, in your attitude, in your believing, let the Holy Spirit reveal it to you. Because you are one simple step away from receiving the miracle that you're looking for. It's not the work of the devil that keeps it from happening. It's our failure to recognize the line that needs to be crossed. That line which is in our minds. The devil is not big enough to keep you from the things of God. Only you can do that. Let the fire fall, Father. Let the glory of God fall upon us. Let the supernatural becomes commonplace. That miracles take place. We commit to you, Father, that we'll never take them for granted. We will always have respect under the flowing power of God. But let the miraculous be the norm for us because of the truth of your word.
In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. It's time for some of you to get up. To change. The place where you've been. And to get up. Into the things of God. I'm not sure what that means. I assume it has a variety of applications. But there are some of you that God has told you to do something and you held back. There are, there are others that have resisted because you haven't known. Either way, it's time to get up and do what God told you to do. Accept what he's spoken about you and unto you. And get up into the things of the Spirit. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is your situation too hard for the Lord? Is impossible a hindrance for God? Change, change. I keep getting that word change. It's time to change. I think that's what get up means. I think it means to make some changes. It's time to make some changes. It's time to put off the things of the flesh and walk in the Spirit. It's time to reach out into what God has purposed for you to do here on this earth. It's time to leave back the things that have held you bound and make the change. Make the change to become who God designed and destined you to be. In Jesus' name. Oh, it's just getting good now. <laughs> I see that, Lord. I'll do it.
presence of God came in on a service like this that Brother Hagin was having one of his winter Bible seminars, I think. We sat there for an hour and 45 minutes and nobody moved. Kids didn't cry. Nobody stirred. The Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. There's a stillness that comes in the presence of the Lord. When God's dealing with you about change. It's time for some of us to grow up. It's time for some of us to stop having our petty little arguments about this thing or that thing or our pet doctrines or our pet little things and time to grow up. Because there's a world waiting to find out that Jesus is alive. And there's only one thing that's going to prove that and that's the power of God. Oh, what a wonderful day we live in. The day of the moving of the Spirit of God. The day of the precious fruit of the earth coming to harvest. The day of the lightnings of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, a service like this, you really can't dismiss. There's some that may want to stay. There's some that God may be dealing with. You need to stay. So let me ask you this. For those that want to be dismissed, let's don't fellowship in this room. Let's leave the presence of God here in stillness and in silence. If you want to fellowship, then... Make your way quietly out into the lobby. Let's leave the presence of God here for those that need to stay in it. Amen. Amen. God bless you.